In this week's episode of Shell Shocked, we'll be discussing vaccine denial, including an interview with infectious disease specialist Dr. Paul Offit. The Science Report will touch upon the fraudulent work of Andrew Wakefield and his American mouthpiece Jenny McCarthy. And later, we'll have a good news segment from Marilyn about a Canadian mother of seven who turned from vaccine denier to vaccine proponent. And we'll end with a special report from former Shellshocked co-host Amanda DeVau. We'll talk about the efforts being made in Australia to protect everyone from those who question the safety and efficacy of vaccines. So once again, brace yourselves for another episode of Shellshock. episode topic is one that has been discussed by many other podcasts as well as in the general media vaccines and vaccine denial as a lot of our listeners are probably already aware there's a small but extremely vocal minority of parents and others who've come to believe that vaccines are either unnecessary or downright dangerous even though we originally planned to avoid topics like this one that we feel are covered in other venues, Marilyn and I decided that recent events have made it necessary for us to speak out. One example is recent legislation here in the state of California that seeks to end the conversation as to whether parents have the right to deny vaccination to their children. Marilyn, I understand you've been doing some research on this. What did you find out? Well, Sheldon, um, this legislation was a response to the measles outbreak in Disneyland um, earlier in 2014. I, th I think it was December 2014. Yeah. And uh, the, in the legislation that was introduced would require all children to be fully vaccinated before going to school. And this includes both public and private schools. It includes uh, daycare, nursery school, developmental centers, or even family daycare homes. And the bill was introduced in part by Senator Dr. Richard Pan, who is also a pediatrician. <laughs> right now, California is one of the 19 states that allows personal belief exemptions to public health laws. Right. And this legislation would get rid of the personal belief exemptions and also religious exemptions. Um, right now, there's only two states that allow no religious or personal belief exemptions, and you're not going to believe the two states, um, Mississippi and West Virginia. What? Yeah. In everything else, they're probably behind, but in, in this case, they seem to be ahead of the curve. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Mississippi's <laughs> usually the bottom on everything. I know, but here, here it is. Good for them. Um, so when the uh, legislation was first introduced, um, it, mets, it met a lot of opposition. So right now, what has passed is a legislation that has been altered somewhat. And it, what it says that it, the, the vaccines that will be required are the 10 that are currently mandated. And there won't be any others added to that. Um, because a lot of people were afraid that the HPV vaccine will be added there and whatever new vaccines are added in the future will be also required. So that this law uh, exempts all those new vaccines uh, that are not currently on the list. 
It also grandfathers in children currently in the school system. And right now, school systems check vaccines in kindergarten and in seventh grade. So uh, children who aren't vaccinated, who are past kindergarten, but before seventh grade and, and in eighth grade or beyond are exempt from this law. Wow. And so right now it's probably set to be heard by the Senate later uh, in June or July. But so far with these new developments, it has passed with, you know, uh, with all but one, one of the people not uh, voting for it. What do you think is the source of vaccine denial? We see lots of different groups talking about this, but are there any commonalities? I think that it's misinformation and fear. Um, I think it's fear of their children uh, not growing up uh, like typical kids. And it's this idea that I could be doing this to my kids. And I want my kids to have everything. And if, if there's something that I'm doing that's making that not possible, then I want to make sure I know about it. So I, I do think it's this, you know, love for your children and, and this fear and misinformation that's out there. Yeah, I agree. That's especially true in the case of the so-called connection between vaccines and autism, which has been disproven many times. And later on, we have Dr. Paul Offit uh, in an interview who's going to talk a little bit about that. But I think you're right. I think vilifying these parents, making them out to be stupid, um, is counterproductive and untrue. I think these are genuinely people who love their kids. They're just, like you said, receiving a lot of really bad advice and really bad information from people who don't know. Yeah, and autism has has been exponentially rising and we don't know what causes it and so it makes sense that parents are trying to figure it out and uh, uh, you're going to talk about Wakefield later but from 2000 to 2012 when his research came out and people have started hearing about it in California for example personal belief exemptions for vaccines in schools has risen by 337 percent oh so he, you know, this whole autism scare, I think, was the big start to this. And then it fed into, I don't want the government telling me what to do. I don't want big pharma, you know, making money off of the health of my kids. And so I, I agree with you. I think they come from a place of love. I don't, and, but they don't see the other side is, you know, I always say, you know, do you think really think your pediatrician is sitting there going, ha ha, I'm going to hurt your child. Yeah. You know, pediatricians went into this, into their field because they love children. Right. And they love to help. And to say that they're in cahoots with big pharma, you know, is is very wrong. And I think most people, when you say, what kind of relationship do you have with your pediatrician? And it's a very good relationship. And don't you trust your pediatrician? And then when you give them that kind of, you know, uh, information, they get better. For example, in um, 2013, a law here in California, they mandated parents who wanted a personal exemption to uh, had to talk first to a licensed healthcare provider mm. about the potential risks and benefits of vaccines. And that law 
actually dropped the personal exception rate by 20%. Whoa. So I think when parents go and they get good information from a person they trust, they make, you know, they make different decisions. Right. It's amazing how the attitude toward medicine, toward doctors, toward science in general has changed in the past 50 or 60 years. All you have to do is a quick Google search on a man named Jonas Salk to see that very clearly. Um, in 1955, Dr. Thomas Francis Jr. of the University of Michigan, the monitor of the test results, declared that the vaccine was safe and effective and all hell broke loose. Eli Lilly and company paid $250,000 in 1955 dollars to broadcast the event. They had 16 television and newsreel cameras there. 54,000 physicians sitting in movie theaters across the country all watching this broadcast on closed circuit television. This was a major event and they hailed the man as a hero. Wow. And now we have people who turn to doctors and say, you're trying to harm my child, you're part of some complex of, of I don't know, evil people who are trying to damage my child. Why would they do that? Yeah, I don't know. It it sounds like this whole Salk thing was uh, as big as the moon landing. Yeah. You know, everybody watching all this kind of stuff. Um, but it's, you know, we hear from, they're a very vocal minority. We do have to remember that they are a minority. Right. They have, they have outnumbered the people who have been speaking out pro-vaccines in these uh, legislation meetings. Um, they've come up in the hundreds to try to uh, protest the legislation and they do outnumber everybody else. But we do have to remember they're a very small number. And I think most people do view them as way out there. Um, there was a recently on, um, a couple days ago, a poll on Facebook that Facebook did about the worst people on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And the number one <laughs> worst group of people on Facebook were the anti-vaccine crowds wow they just make you know such uh, misguided statements they are so vicious that they have become one of the most hated groups uh, on there um, you know bigger oh. than than conspiracy theorists climate change deniers you know you name it they're the number one most hated group on Facebook Wow well that's heartening yes that is very <laughs> heartening it's, it's good to remember that when we're fighting this fight to remember that, again, it, it is, you know, maybe only one or two percent of the population. Yeah. But they are very vocal. They're very well educated and they do have money. Yeah. This Facebook poll was done by Zuckerberg and he said that it was in response to he after recommending a book called On Immunity by Eula Biss as part of his book club, he got all this feedback from the anti-vaccine members and they they went crazy and so he said we know they are among the worst people on Facebook and this just confirms it the poll that they did maybe one day we can rid Facebook of all of them and in the process probably save some children's lives we are working on that as we speak go Zuckerberg Mark Zuckerberg said that that is yeah. so great <laughs> yes so we have some powerful people too on our side.
As many of our listeners are likely well aware, the U.S. and Europe are undergoing a major change in the way we think about vaccines. Our parents' and grandparents' generations welcomed vaccination as a wonder of modern medicine that dramatically decreased the likelihood that they would suffer the effects of childhood illnesses that just a generation or two before resulted in serious health problems for millions and in some cases even death. Practically overnight, an entirely new attitude toward vaccination started to emerge, this time meeting them with fear and suspicion. Arguments ranged from the milder, there seemed to be too many too early, to the more dramatic claim that they somehow cause autism. Our guest today is at the forefront of the effort to not only dispel those myths, but also to restore the previous respect that childhood vaccinations once enjoyed for their ability to prevent suffering and save lives. Dr. Paul Offit is a professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. In addition, Dr. Offit is the Maurice R. Hillman Professor of Vaccinology and a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He's the recipient of numerous awards and has published more than 140 papers in medical and scientific journals in the areas of rotavirus-specific immune responses and vaccine safety. He's also the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine Rotatech, recommended for universal use in infants by the Centers for Disease Control, as well as the author of eight books covering topics related to pediatrics, autism, antibiotic overdependence, and the benefits and safety of childhood vaccines. His latest book is Bad Faith, When Religious Belief Undermines Modern Medicine. Dr. Offit, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I recently read that overall, nearly 10% of California's kindergartners don't start school fully vaccinated, and at least 2.5% have been granted personal belief exemptions, meaning they can attend public school with no vaccinations at all. That's a lot of unvaccinated kids, and that's just in California. How bad is the problem here in the U.S.? I think generally it's pretty bad. I mean, you, the the estimates by the CDC are that about 10 to 20 percent of children uh, have parents who are choosing to delay or withhold or separate or space out vaccines. So that's a common problem. And then one to two percent, you know, nationwide are cho choosing to have their children receive no vaccines. And you know, I think um, you know this is bad when you start to see measles come back. There's probably no better uh, indicator of the strength of a national immunization program than measles because one, the vaccine is excellent. I mean, we essentially eliminated measles from the U.S. by 2000. It's, it's a single dose of vaccine induces 95% protection, which is to say 95 of 100 people who receive it are protected. But on the other hand, it is a highly contagious disease, well, frankly, one of the most contagious diseases. And when there's any sort of erosion in herd immunity, you see that, that virus come back first. And that's just what you're saying. Can you explain in basic terms what a vaccine is and how it works to help us build immunity? Right, so the purpose of a vaccine is to induce the immunity that is a consequence of natural infection without having to pay the price of natural infection. So vaccines may just be sort of one protein that's part of a virus, or it may be a highly weakened strain of the virus, or it may be a, a, a just a completely inactivated or killed form of the virus, um, or it may be just a part of the bacteria or a part of the bacteria that's linked to a harmless protein. So there's a lot of what different ways in which you can essentially create the immunity that follows natural infection without having to pay the price of the disease, which can be quite high, that's, that's often a consequence of natural infection. The, the, the term natural uh, seems to be you know, generally uh, embraced by many Americans, but in the world of infectious diseases, there's nothing good about natural. 
I remember watching a miniseries a while back about John Adams. In one episode, they highlighted a viral outbreak and his very difficult decision to allow his wife and children to be vaccinated. Of course, that was back in the 18th century. How has vaccination changed since then? Right, so the outbreak was smallpox. Um, this was actually before the smallpox vaccine. The smallpox vaccine was until the late 1790s, and so and, and that was that was that was vaccination, which is to say that you gave vaccinia virus, which is you know sort of a modified cowpox virus. What he's talking about, what John Adams was talking about, was not really vaccination. It was something called variolation, which is to say that you would take someone who would survive smallpox, you would take these these crusts from the blisters that had formed on their body, you would then ground it up into a fine powder and then you would either inhale it or inject it into a vein and it was about it lessened your chance of getting smallpox five to six fold but you're basically inoculating people with live weakened form of smallpox virus which obviously could occasionally have fatal side effects so it was it was a much tougher decision than, than it is now but you know there's probably no better uh, stronger story really than smallpox we you know smallpox was estimated to kill probably 500 million people in the world and we've eliminated that virus from the face of the earth by vaccination as I'm sure you're well aware, vaccine denial is at an all-time high here in the U.S. and also elsewhere. What started this? Was there an epicenter? I think epicenter of vaccine denial, I would say in America, the, the birth of the modern American anti-vaccine movement was in the early 80s with a, a show actually that appeared on NBC called DPT Vaccine Roulette, which raised the frankly false notion that, that the wholesale pertussis or whooping cough vaccine could cause permanent brain damage, could cause epilepsy, could cause developmental delays. That wasn't true, but it was a very powerful film that, that, that really caused people, I think for the first time in this country, to think that vaccines might be doing more harm than good. Um, and, and, you know, it, it led to a flood of litigation that ultimately uh, drove a lot of vaccine makers out of the business. And it was it was uh, it was tragic. Um, to today, it's it's um, I think the, the, the fear over that particular problem has declined. But I think really what it boils down to is fear. I think people um, are motivated by fear far more than reason. And I think the reason you're seeing people choose not to to vaccinate today or to back away from vaccines is because they don't fear the disease. But I, but I would say this. Most people get vaccinated. I mean, you know, 90% of, of, of parents choose to, to protect their children uh, from these, these diseases. So most people do get vaccinated. I think certainly those who oppose vaccines tend to get a disproportionate amount of media attention. But, but we're very good about vaccinating. And we ask a lot of, of our citizens. You know, we, we ask our citizens to get vaccines to prevent 14 different diseases in the first few years of life. That can mean as many as 26 inoculations during that time to prevent diseases that most people don't see using biological fluids that most people don't understand. So I think it is impressive, frankly, that we're able to have as high of immunization rates as we have. But you're right. There are sort of a, a, a sort of small but a very vocal group that, that chooses uh, to expose their children uh, to unnecessary harm. So let's address a few of the more popular claims made by those people who I call vaccine denialists, although they call themselves vaccine skeptics. Uh, one of them is that vaccines cause autism. Yeah, I mean, this has had sort of several iterations. It started with the notion that the combination measles, mumps, rubella, or MMR vaccine caused autism. There were probably 14 studies that had been done at this point, including a recent one in the Journal of the American Medical Association that involved more than 90,000 people, including children or younger siblings, where the older sibling had autism, which obviously that younger child was at risk, that shows that MMR vaccine clearly is not associated with autism. So a choice not to get an MMR vaccine is not a choice to lessen your child's risk of autism. 
autism. It's only a choice to increase your child's risk of getting one of those three viruses. Then it sort of morphed to the notion that thimerosal, this ethyl mercury-containing preservative in vaccines, caused autism. Again, this was actually easily studied because Western Europe had taken thimerosal out of vaccines by 1991. We essentially eliminated thimerosal in vaccines for young children by you know 2000-2001. There were Canadian provinces that used a full complement of thimerosal-containing vaccines right next to provinces that used the same vaccines that didn't contain thimerosal. So it was very easy to study that, and we now have seven solid studies that show that you know that thimerosal doesn't increase one's risk of autism. And then it sort of morphed again to too many vaccines given too soon causes autism. This is a little harder to study, but there are a couple studies out there showing that for parents who choose to delay uh, vaccines till children are older, those children are, are not at lesser risk of autism or developmental dis disorders than uh, had they chosen to vaccinate them earlier and protect them earlier. What do you think of personal belief exemptions? Should we do away with those in the U.S. completely, or can we find a solution to the problem that balances out people's religious or other freedoms and public health? Well, they're certainly misnamed. Uh, you know, the, the, the vaccines aren't a belief system. They're, they're an evidence-based system, and they stand on a mountain of evidence that vaccines are safe and effective. So it's, it's, not, it's not religion or politics or, you know, philosophy. I honestly, this is a belief system. It's an evidence-based system. But, um, you know, I think, you know, it, it's very hard to take away rights that people feel they already have. I mean, keep in mind that, that it is your constitutional right to have a medical exemption to vaccination. In other words, if you are allergic to a particular component of a vaccine, it is your constitutional right not to have to receive that vaccine. But it is not your constitutional right to have a religious or philosophical exemption. Those are state decisions, and they're invariably political. I think in a better world, we would have neither. You know, we don't have philosophical and religious exemptions to car seat laws because car seats save our lives. I, I don't see this as any different, really. I mean, in a better world, we wouldn't have um, non-medical exemptions because they don't make sense. Or at least call them what they are. What they, you know, they, we we say personal belief exemption. We say philosophical exemption. Philo love, sophos wisdom. Where's the wisdom that says it's better not to get a vaccine and get one? And religious exemption is even worse. It's just, you know, putting your child unnecessarily in or in harm's way uh, unnecessarily in the name of religion is not a religious act to me, and, and shouldn't be given, frankly, the legal protections of religion. In a in a better world, we wouldn't need it. In a better world, people would educate themselves about. The, the evidence that shows vaccines are what they're claimed to be, and they would all get vaccinated. Um, so it wouldn't be an issue. But unfortunately, there's a lot of bad information out there that causes people to make bad decisions. How much do you think the media is responsible for the current atmosphere of mistrust regarding vaccination, like things like journalistic balance or celebrities offering medical advice? Right, it's it's false balance. I mean, you know, there, there's not two sides to every story, and, and, and there's you know, you could argue for philosophy and religion and, and uh, politics. There's more of two sides, but that's not true here. You know, the the um, it, you, the, the media will often tell two sides of a story when only one side is supported by the science. I think that's gotten much better lately. I, I find the media caters much less to these anti-vaccine forces because I think they, they realize, frankly, they were burned by the autism story. I think they followed Andrew Wakefield and sort of his star until they realized that he was not only wrong, but he was fraudulent and wrong, and that that really uh, burned them. So I, I think um, I think things are actually much better with the media than it used to be. And maybe it's simply because nothing educates as well as the virus and the disease, and we now you know are suffering this outbreak from measles that started in Disney. Doctors like you are on the front lines of medical intervention and education, but how can everyday folks like me and the listeners help? 
Well, I, th I think there's there's sort of um, no bad information should go unchallenged. I think if people see that you know that there's there's misinformation that's in a newspaper, or a magazine article, or a local television show, that they should call the producer or the writer and say, look, this isn't this statement isn't backed by science. I think you know the degree to which we can educate our children in, in you know starting from elementary school on up is good. Any way one can participate to try and and promote what is the societal good. Uh, you know, it's if it, you shouldn't in a better world have to make a societal argument. You can simply say that that. For for every individual, the choice to, assuming there's not a medical contraindication, the choice to get a vaccine is a better choice than not getting one. That benefits not only the individual, but then consequently society. So I think um, I think we should um, should see that no venue is too small to weigh in our opinion if we see that bad science is being put out there. Well, I thank you very much for your time and for being on the show. Where can people go to find out more about what you're up to? Well, so we the, the Vaccine Education Center here at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia has a website, which is vaccine.chop.edu um, where we try and get good information out there. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The Science Report Some of the most dedicated and underappreciated parents on the planet are those whose children have been diagnosed with autism, a pervasive spectrum disorder that presents varying degrees of cognitive, emotional, and developmental problems beginning in childhood. Although autism is not likely to have a single cause, scientists are hard at work trying to determine its etiology. As yet, little is known. Working to uncover more information about what might contribute to its prevalence is important, as are the development of effective therapies to help autistic children and their parents deal with the struggles of daily life. In the past several years, an increasingly vocal minority of well-meaning parents has begun focusing attention on, of all things, childhood vaccinations, creating a classic correlation versus causation scenario that threatens the lives of literally millions of children. The science of vaccination has a long history, dating back as far as 200 BC in China and India. In the 18th century, soldiers in Turkey would routinely inoculate themselves with finely ground scabs from people who had contracted smallpox. This was observed by Europeans and others who brought the controversial practice back with them. Although no one really understood why it worked, nor why it would sometimes end in full contraction of the disease or even death, it slowly became clear to people that inoculation was superior to other methods of avoiding some diseases. As science-based medicine blossomed over the centuries, so did our understanding of antibodies, as well as our ability to manufacture vaccines with dead or attenuated forms of viruses, making death and illness due to vaccination a thing of the past, and creating what is arguably the most significant scientific breakthrough in health and longevity humans have ever witnessed. The effect of vaccination cannot be overstated. Even a cursory examination of history reveals a world filled with death and disease that people today can't even imagine. After routine nationwide vaccinations got underway, all of that abruptly ended for the first time in human history. After centuries of wreaking havoc on the human species, smallpox was eventually eradicated from the planet. In the U.S., 
The first 20 years of nationwide MMR vaccinations alone saved approximately 52 million people from measles, a disease that causes severe brain damage, blindness, and even death, especially in children. Today's vaccines are safe and staggeringly effective. Less than 1% of Americans contracts diseases for which children are regularly vaccinated, and death is almost unheard of. Lately, however, all of that success has began to unravel, thanks to the efforts of a few very confused and misguided people. Seeking an answer as to why their children have autism, these parents were spurred into action by a 1998 paper in the reputable British medical journal The Lancet, which made the claim that vaccinations were to blame for a majority of cases of autism. The medical community immediately took notice and started investigating the claim. Not only was there no evidence for the proposed link, the author of that paper, Andrew Wakefield, was later revealed to have major credibility issues. Among the criticisms levied against him are that Wakefield had received large research grants from the trial lawyers seeking evidence against vaccine manufacturers. The fact that most of Wakefield's co-authors retracted their support of the paper's interpretation after criticisms from fellow scientists were published as well as that Wakefield had at one time filed for a patent on a rival vaccine which was later found to be ineffective, and perhaps worst of all, that Wakefield knew of but did not publish test results that contradicted his theory by showing that no measles virus was found in the children tested. In February of 2010, Wakefield's original study was further discredited when the scientific journal in which it was published took the unusual step of retracting it and apologizing to the scientific community as well as to the public. Following the initial claims in 1998, multiple large epidemiologic studies were undertaken. Reviews of the evidence were completed by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Institute of Medicine, the National Academy of Science, the UK's National Health Service, and the prestigious Cochrane Library. The conclusion of this unprecedentedly large and expensive examination was that there is no link between vaccinations and autism. The results of this investigation and many others have had little effect on the anti-vax movement. Vaccination rates in the Western world are still strong, but they continue to slowly decrease in some areas. And already reports of measles, mumps, rubella, and other preventable infectious diseases are beginning to be reported in record numbers. This is literally a life-threatening urban myth that needs to be stopped now. Part of the problem, I suspect, is a lack of good science education. Even today, many people have a very limited understanding of how science operates and how to evaluate claims logically. A good example of this comes from the newly anointed spokesperson for the movement, celebrity Jenny McCarthy, a woman who continues to offer extremely poor evidence for her beliefs. In interviews, she routinely claims that a connection can be seen by comparing the increase in vaccinations in percentage of children vaccinated as well as the number of vaccinations administered to the increase in autism diagnoses. In other words, she seems to believe that if two things increase at the same time, they must be connected causally. But a more likely reason for this positive correlation is that the publication of the new DSM came with a broader definition of autism, resulting in more children being recognized as having the disorder who would not have been recognized under the previous diagnostic criteria. 
The fact that this increase in diagnosis, not an increase in prevalence by the way, happens to coincide with a change in the way we vaccinate is not proof of a link between vaccinations and autism. But perhaps a better way to put this is, we should stop relying upon celebrities, politicians, and other non-professionals to tell us what to think about science. And that's good advice for any topic. Have you heard the good news? Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi, this is Marilyn, and I'm bringing you the good news. Good news story this week comes from our neighbor up north. The good part of the story is that an Ottawa mother of seven defected from the anti-vaccination movement. Hurrah! The sad part of the story is that first, her youngest, a 10-month-old son, contracted whooping cough, and then the other six children all contracted it before she could get all of her children their shots. I'll fill you in on how they're doing after I tell you what led Tara Hills to her decision. Tara Hills, the mother at the center of our story, says that the family had a game night at their house in March, and on that night her brother-in-law, who was present, had a full-blown cold. So when her kids started with a dry cough a few days later, she didn't think much of it. But after a week after the symptoms started, the kids weren't improving. In fact, they were getting worse, and the cough no one had a runny nose or sneezing, but they all had the same unproductive cough. Between coughing fits, they were fine. Then, a few days later at midnight is when she snapped. Her youngest three children were coughing so hard they would gag or vomit. She had never seen anything like this before. Watching her youngest struggle with this choking cough, bringing up clear stringy mucus, made her realize she had heard of this somewhere before. Her mom later told her that she had had whooping cough when she was a kid. That night, however, she snapped into something is wrong mode and jumped onto what else but Google to type in child cough. Her kids had all but one symptom of pertussis. None of them had the characteristic whoop, but they had everything else. The Hills family had vaccinated their first three children on an alternative schedule, but their youngest four weren't vaccinated at all. They stopped because they were scared and they didn't know whom to trust. Was the medical community just paid off puppets of a big pharma government media conspiracy? Were these vaccines even necessary in this day and age? Were they unwittingly doing greater harm than help to their beloved children? To them, like many in the anti-vaccination movement, so much smoke must mean a fire. So they defaulted to the do nothing and hope nothing bad happens position. Hill acknowledges that for years, relatives tried to persuade them to reconsider through emails and links, but this only irritated them and made them defensive. Secretly, she hoped she would find the proof she needed to hold the course, but deep down, she was resigned to only find endless conflicting arguments that never resolved anything. No matter if they vaccinated or not, she thought, it would be nothing more than a coin toss with horrible risks either way. When the Disneyland measles outbreak happened in January 2015, Hills and her husband, much to their credit, agreed to take a new look and weigh the evidence on both sides. A friend suggested she write out her questions so she could tackle them one by one. Just getting it out on paper helped her so much. She only ended up with a handful of questions, but more potent than her questions were her biases. She didn't trust civic government, the medical community, the pharmaceutical industry, and people in general. 
By default, she had excluded all research available from any major reputable organization. Could all the in-house, independent, peer-reviewed clinical trials, research papers, and studies across the globe all be flawed, corrupt, and untrustworthy? The final shift came when she connected the dots between a small but real measles outbreak in her personal circles this time last year. But for luck, her family was one step from contracting measles in her mostly under or unvaccinated seven kids. Maybe they could have weathered that storm unscathed in personal quarantine. But the Hills shockingly realized that in the four highly contagious days before any symptoms showed, they easily could have passed on their infection to her sister's toddlers or her sister's 34-week-old son. When she connected the dates for everyone involved, it chilled her to the bone. She looked again at the science and evidence for community immunity and found herself gripped with a very real sense of personal and social responsibility. The time had come to make a more fully informed decision than they had six years ago. She sat down with her family doctor and they put together a catch-up vaccination schedule for her children. That schedule was supposed to start the week after she found herself in the waiting room of the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario with her 10-month-old son, waiting to confirm if he had whooping cough. After the dreaded diagnosis, Ottawa Public Health was very helpful and communicative, trying to get them the help they needed while keeping the community safe. The Hills were under quarantine for five days and started antibiotics. Since then, you'll be glad to know, children have finished taking their antibiotics and are no longer under quarantine and have recovered nicely. While in quarantine, Hills decided to share her story in a parenting blog post called Learning the Hard Way, My Journey from Anti-Vax to Science. And I quote, it's very sobering and it's very raw because we had just made a more fully informed decision about vaccinations. We had just defected from the anti-vaccination camp. It was too late. It's so ironic and I'm not beating myself up for it. I just hope we can use this very painful experience to encourage other people like us to maybe re-examine this issue. I am not looking forward to any gloating or shame as this defection from the anti-vax camp goes public, but this isn't a popularity contest. Right now, my family is living the consequences of misinformation and fear. I understand that families in our community may be mad at us for putting their kids at risk. I want them to know that we tried our best to protect our kids when we were afraid of vaccination, and we are doing our best now for everyone's sake by getting them up to date. Since all the publicity, Hills has tried to avoid reading the comments on the articles about her situation, saying she has seen compassion in some posts, but also cruelty. Hill says she hopes the worldwide attention her story received reaches people who don't vaccinate. But she also worries about driving them further away. She thinks to reach others who hold anti-vaccination views, people should not be too self-righteous or belittling. She says you can either help those people move one step closer to reevaluating and making a change, or you can drive them further in their corner where they won't even listen anymore. Let's hope that Hill's story and message does reach many well-meaning but misinformed families and leads to their changing their minds to do the right thing for their children and for the rest of their community. This is Marilyn, and this has been The Good News. Hello, this is Amanda DeVal, and I am going to be talking about a meme that appeared on the internet recently that is currently the hot topic. This meme appeared on the Facebook page of the charming anti-vaccination group known as the Australian Vaccination Skeptics Network. 
This meme was basically saying that forced vaccination is comparable to rape. The controversial image depicts a man gripping a terrified woman's head, his hands over her mouth, with a caption reading, Forced penetration? Really no big deal if it's just a vaccination needle and he is a doctor. Do you really need control over your own choices? Implication is pretty clear. Deciding that your children requiring life-saving vaccinations for them is the same as someone's right to consent being disregarded. Having a child's skin penetrated by the needle to vaccinate them is apparently akin to a person being raped. They say that both actions are taking the autonomy away from another individual to control their own bodies and therefore this kind of comparison is allowed. Pretty quickly this image faced a huge backlash and all over the internet was quickly marked as being abhorrent and insulting by the Medical Association, the New South Wales Rape Crisis Centre and politicians as well as the general public and well anyone with a moral compass and more than a teacup brain capacity. Even more amazingly enough is that even the supporters of the group themselves have expressed disgust, describing it as totally out of line. Pretty quickly after the backlash, this post actually disappeared and was taken down. And it follows a tough new government policy on vaccination in Australia that bars families with unvaccinated children from receiving tax benefits. The Social Services Minister has also recently removed the religious exemption that used to apply to this ban. President of the Australian Vaccination Skeptics Network, Tasha David, who the group campaigns for parents to have a choice, says their group does not own the page that disappeared and has no power over what to put on it. And as per usual, Meryl Dory had to get her nose into it and released a statement saying that the anti-vaccination group was not responsible for the image and shouldn't have been posted. Interesting considering it was posted. She stated, We do not agree that rape and vaccination are the same and believe that this picture should be taken down as it is an offensive to rape victims. Frankly, it's this type of ill-informed and honestly disgusting campaign that only serves to inform parents about the dangers of listening to these people peddling their rights to not vaccinate. Before I go any further, I'm going to have a clarification. I was a victim of rape and also um, has been vaccinated and I can quite honestly say that one is not the same as the other. It is difficult actually no it's mind-boggling how someone could even think to construct this type of post never mind post it on the internet it displays a complete ignorance a lack of common sense and intelligence it's this type of shock tactics that we come to expect from these type of groups it is impossible to adequately describe the abhorrence of this type of behavior this image trivializes the very real issue of violence against both women and men in our society vaccination is essential to protecting the health of children and it just highlights once again how it's important for those of us not just in the skeptics community but in the community in general to counter this type of tactics with real facts and real evidence so parents and the general public can make an informed choice without having to witness or deal with this type of vile rubbish.
onto the actual vaccination issue itself. It is amazing that we live in a society that we constantly have to actually remind people. But once again, we're going to. Your choices to not vaccinate endangers the life of another child or brings back diseases that has been eradicated back into our society. People need to remember that the government is not being evil, they're not taking away your choice, they're not wanting to control the population or any of those type of scare tactics that these cretins are using to get their point across. By implementing the current reform, they were simply removing childcare and family tax benefits to unvaccinated children. Funnily enough, it's amazing that now the AVSN are denying knowledge and denying ownership of this type of post and have released statements saying that they condemn it. Because I think we need to remember one thing. This is not the first time that this group has compared vaccination to rape or assault. About four years ago, they released a tweet comparing a court-ordered vaccination of a child as a court-ordered rape. The anti-vaccination crowd have long been rallying against the pro-vaccination views of the wider medical community by claiming many things from wacky to just ill-informed, including that vaccines cause autism and vaccination is a personal choice and we have the right to make those choices. Their self-proclaimed aims to empower people to make informed choices because every issue has two sides. This is despite huge and continuing scientific consensus that there is no other side when it comes to whether or not we should vaccinate. The facts are clear. The overwhelming majority of scientific and medical evidence supports the benefit of vaccines. And around 2014, a major international review found zero, zip, nada, nil evidence linking the development of autism with commonly used vaccines for measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, tetanus and whooping cough. In March last year, the AVSN lost its charity status over concerns that it could adversely affect children's health. Their group was also forced to use the word sceptics in their name over claim that their title, which was the Australian Vaccination Network, was misleading. Even today, millions of children worldwide die each year from vaccination-preventable diseases. This figure would even more distressing high if so many parents did not make the choice to access vaccinations for their children and also contribute to the community's herd immunity. As we have seen in recent years, as childhood vaccination rates throughout Australia have decreased in part to scare campaigns like this, breakouts of potentially deadly diseases including measles and whooping cough have also started increasing again. This is not the first nor the last time that these groups will resort to offensive and scare tactics to get their message across. They want a knee-jerk reaction and have their views aired in the media. And frankly, they don't have any facts or evidence to back up their claims. It seems all they have proven is by resorting to such vile and provocative campaigns as their opinions going against scientific evidence hold little to no eventual weight. Reversing vaccinations for ideological reasons is like refusing to wash your hands after using the toilet. Personally, I rely a lot on herd immunity because I do vaccinate. However, my body seems to be resistant to a lot of the vaccinations. So I'm still vulnerable to chickenpox and to various illnesses don't want to contribute your fair share to public health, that's fine. But at the same time, it is unreasonable to expect not to be excluded from 
benefits. So to sum up, anti-vaccination groups, especially people who think it's acceptable to do this kind of campaign, are despicable. They are liars and they are bullies. They have their own distorted reality and live in a world where they think they're fighting the good fight. And unfortunately, they're going to continue as long as the government seems to either not want to or not have the power to do something to stop them. It is our role as sceptics, as human beings and people with brains and intellect to be visible and counter and show the evidence because one time you can talk to someone and you can actually save a life. Thank you very much. I'm out. As always, thanks for tuning in for another episode of Shell Shock. Just one more reminder before we go, the tickets are still on sale for Skeptical, Northern California's most affordable all-day conference on science and skepticism. And my co-host will be speaking for the Sunday Assembly of Silicon Valley on Sunday, May 10th. Marilyn will be talking about embracing mistakes and will cover the psychological processes behind making mistakes and how we can learn to love being wrong. Information for both of those events can be found in the show notes on our website. And be sure to tune in next week when we'll discuss the topic of memory, including an interview with famed memory researcher and psychologist Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. Until then, you've been shell-shocked.